I'd like to just very briefly recapitulate what's been going on in this uh, discourse by the Buddha about the self. Because he first, of course, gave a um, path of practice. But then he discussed with Potapada his erroneous views. And so first he asked him, are you postulating, are you thinking there is a self? And Potapada says, yes. And uh, so he first comes out with the gross one, made of the four elements for the body. And the Buddha says, well, no, that can't be so. Then he says, well, maybe then there's a mind-made one, mind-made meaning everything that goes on in our mind. And the Buddha also says, no, it can't be so. And then he says, well, maybe there's one that's um, perception. The Buddha says, no, that's not so. So then Puddha says, well, how can one like me understand that? And then the Buddha says, well, you've got uh, a different practice and different views and different... Um, um, faith, so you really can't understand that. So then they get off on a tangent. They talk about different things and give the Buddha opportunity <coughs> to say to Prabhupada, well, none of this is really relevant. The Four Noble Truths are relevant. And uh, <coughs> so then, having finished with that, then the Buddha comes back to those three kinds of self that Prabhupada had postulated, obviously believing that it's either one or the other or maybe all three, most likely all three, because that's more common, that we think we're all three of them. And usually we don't even divide them up. We don't get the idea that we need to divide the self into three parts. The whole bundle is called me or self. So then the Buddha comes back to that and uh, tries to explain to Podapada that he's actually teaching a doctrine which gets rid of that assumption. And that this, when one follows that, that there is purification and also happiness, happy mind states, if one follows this uh, teaching. So then, having come to the end of that, he asked for the Pada that, do you think that what I've said is uh, well-founded? And Potapada agrees it is. In the meantime, of course, his wanderers have sort of uh, left Potapada. They no longer believe in him because he's listening to the Buddha, which is very um, <laughs> not uncommon. You know, if you have a teacher, and then this teacher goes to a different teacher and to learn something new, and then the uh, disciples think, oh, my teacher doesn't know everything, so I better go somewhere else because he's still trying to find out something new. That happens all the time. It's happening particularly in America. So, <laughs> so um, it's, it's happened here. It's the same thing. These wanderers are saying, well, you're saying yes to... The, the ascetic Gotama, what is all this? We don't understand a word of what he's saying. So they have apparently, you know, left. And uh, because there's no other word of them, they're never mentioned again. So he comes to that, to the uh, end of saying to Prabhupada that he teaches a doctrine which gets rid of the assumption of all of those three supposed selves. And uh, Potapada agrees it very, sounds very well-founded, sounds logical. And he gives him this, uh, these two similes about the staircase for a palace and a beautiful girl, and uh, it all sounds very good. Now, Chitta comes into the conversation, and he has a new idea about the self. It's uh, also not... Uh, very much uh, different from what we're doing. We also get new ideas about the self. So he says, At this chitta, son of the elephant trainer, said to the Lord, Lord, whenever the gross assumed self is present, 
Would it be wrong to assume the existence of the mind-made acquired self or of the formless acquired self? Does only the gross acquired self truly exist then? And similarly, with the mind-made acquired self and the formless acquired self. So what he's actually saying is, when I'm thinking of one of these selves, what about the other two? In other words, he believes in all three. And we can easily identify with that. Let's say we're walking along quite uh, peacefully and we fall down over a root on the way and hurt our knee. starts bleeding or something. What are we thinking of? I've hurt my leg, obviously. Now, not only the language... That's it. That's exactly what I'm thinking. I've hurt my leg, and I better do something about it immediately. So I go somewhere and get something put on this hurt leg, and then it hurts me a while, and then I think, oh, my leg's really bad. It's terrible. I must do something else, must get some massage or whatever it is that we think of, or homeopathy or anything that we can think of acupuncture so at that time the only self that is really of importance to us is what is called here the gross acquired self acquired just means assumed and gross just means body so the assumption of the body self we do have to keep translating the translation because, of course, the translation is scholarly, and as it should be. It shouldn't be anything else. And so it tries to stick to the actual uh, words that are being used in Pali, and these are the proper translations. But we need to know what is meant, otherwise these suttas don't do us much good. So, and we often have this body self. What about when we're eating? I'm hungry. I want to eat these different things. After having eaten, my tummy isn't quite full. I'll take a little more. That's all the assumption of the body self. My hunger, my body, my tummy. Nothing else exists at the time. He wants to know whether they all three exist at the same time. And uh, actually the Buddha tells him, he says... Whenever the gross acquired self is present, we do not at that time speak of a mind-made acquired self. We do not speak of a formless acquired self. We speak only of a gross acquired self. Whenever the mind-made acquired self is present, we speak only of a mind-made acquired self. And whenever the formless acquired self is present, we speak only of that. So we can see that very often we are the body. And particularly are we the body when there is a little more of a strong sensation like pain or like pleasurable sensation, when they are a little more than neutral. Now, the body is very rarely neutral. It does have its um, off moments when it is neutral, neutral sensations, and we don't really have to identify with it. But the minute anything happens, either pleasurable or not pleasurable, in a little bit of a more extreme uh, sensation, that moment we are the body. We know that from the sitting practice. The minute the whole thing doesn't feel so good anymore, sitting, what are we concerned with? unless we've got uh, concentrated and don't feel the body. But if we do, that's what we're concerned with. And, of course, in sickness and in all those states where we have something major that goes on. It doesn't have to be a real major illness. It just needs to be, let's say, cough, a cold, sneezing. It's all body. That's me having all these problems. Now, when that's happening, nothing else is in the mind about me. And then, 
of course, we have the other one, the mind-made one. Let's say we have actually been very diligent in keeping the precepts. So, we think, that's good, I've been keeping the precepts. There's nothing wrong with thinking that's good. But at that time, I am identified with what I've actually been thinking. And the mind identifies with that. At other times, the mind gets upset. It can't meditate because it's thinking of something that keeps coming up again and again. So obviously, that's my mind thinking, making it impossible for me to meditate. And then, of course, on that relative level, one is quite convinced that that's so, because it's me that wants to meditate, and it's me that's being disturbed by these thoughts, so what else could there possibly be? Where is the way out of that? So that's the mind-made self is, of course, of great importance because that's also our observer. And it's memory. Now, I'm remembering me ten years ago. So me is remembering me as it used to be. So actually, we wind up with two mind-made me's because the one is knowing the other. But we don't look at it that way, of course. What we are th- saying and thinking is, well, somebody is remembering something, so it must be me. Who else? We do not, at that moment, without having had that inner vision, recognize the fact that memory is memory and nothing else. So we are remembering mind-made self. We're planning. We're planning what me is going to do next week when it can finally get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) So me is making a nice plan for me in the future. We've again got two me's, but we don't look at it that way. All, All we know is that I'm planning we might also know that we can't meditate while we're planning. But on the other hand, it's a nice pastime. It's something nice to do. It takes one out of the body consciousness, where maybe there's a little ache and a little pain here or there. We don't have to worry about that too much. And it takes one out of the difficulty of trying to keep the mind in its place. So we keep on planning. That's of course, one kind of self which we make up in the mind. And basically, the mind-made self is, of course, that we actually have a mental formation saying, that's me. That's mind-made. And it's usually said in the commentaries that it is uh, refers to the first four jhanas, but... Um, we don't really identify with that so much. What we really identify is with our daily activity where this keeps coming up constantly. In fact, it never leaves us. It's always there. It comes up at the moment of waking. And if one is very careful and mindful, which is possible in an intensive retreat such as this, one can actually notice its arising. There's nothing there, and then all of a sudden, the whole thing comes up. What am I going to do now? What's my next step? Am I in time? Is it too early? Is it too late? Is it cold? Is it warm? The whole thing keeps coming up. It's all in the mind. The body hasn't even done anything yet, except possibly open the eyes. But the whole thing is taking place in the mind. And what's taking place in the mind is all identified with this person. And it also is looking for an escape hatch. 
And that escape hatch from dukkha that the mind is constantly looking for creates all the restlessness, creates all the worries, creates all the planning, creates all the remembering, and it's not an escape hatch at all. It's a dead-end street because doing those things does not remove anything at all. It's a momentary relief, and that's why the whole world does it. It's a momentary relief not to be confronted with the underlying dukkha. The underlying dukkha, which is always there, which is always showing up in the niggling and restless movement of the mind. There's always that. So we look for an escape hatch, obviously. So we make plans. What am I going to do? Well, I'll certainly go to the top, but afterwards I'll have a walk. I'll look at the forest, very nice forest. So the mind is identified with what it's going to do. The mind made itself is probably the one that we are most concerned with and the one that is the most difficult to let go of because then we can also always say okay so I know all that so who knows who knows the uh, teaching of Ramana Maharshi a sage in southern India who died in the 50s and was enlightened was nothing other than asking who am I that was the whole teaching obviously it's a bit difficult to get at it and uh, one needs preparation possibly with other pathways or in other lifetimes but that's all it was who am I and the teaching of Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, who was a disciple of Ramana Maharshi and also a sage in uh, India who died in the 80s, was, I'm that. That was it. Let the rest go. Well, it's a bit difficult, isn't it? But it just goes to show that eventually it all boils down to that one point. And the Buddha is trying to show that in a way which may be acceptable to his listener, in a way which he can grasp. And obviously that's what one needs to do because if we want real happiness, the only way it's possible to have it is by letting go of the one who gets unhappy. And we don't keep the one that gets happy. <laughs> we let go of the one who gets unhappy and therefore nothing else remains except happiness. And the happiness is tranquility. It's tranquility and clear awareness. We had those words also here in this sutta. So with this mind-made self, we have any number of opportunities to recognize it constantly. What am I going to do next year? Where am I going to go? How am I going to uh, arrange everything for myself? Who else? So all that keeps churning in the mind and doesn't bring any tranquility. It's an escape hatch. And while it is impossible to get rid of that just because one might have understood it, it is essential that one can see it, that that is what one is doing. If we can recognize what we're doing, we've done already, taken a great step. As long as we are unconscious, just following instinct and impulse, we are, so to say, going along with the herd. 
everybody does it. But as soon as we recognize that all that mind-made convolution that's going on is nothing but trying to get away from the inner dissatisfaction, even though we mightn't even notice it, that we're dissatisfied. The mind is trying to get away from something, otherwise it would stay right where it is, with whatever is actually in the now. As soon as it tries to get away from it, there's inner dissatisfaction. When we know that, we can get at it. When we don't know it, there's nothing we can do. So it's important that we realize this mind made self. Now, the on that level, we have thousands of opportunities to recognize it. It's doing something else all the time. But there is another level of recognition, which is only one opportunity to recognize. And I have mentioned it already. It is when we become aware of the fact that we have made it up, the self, that the mind has made it up, because that's then the realization. We still don't get rid of it immediately, but we certainly are, so to say, on the precipice of getting rid of it when we have recognized that. Until then, it's important that we realize that what we are thinking about is I'm thinking, I'm observing, I'm concentrating, I'm not concentrating. The whole thing is concerned with I am, or I will be, or I have been. And that is the next question of Chitta. He's in the same boat we're in. I mean, he knows exactly the same things or doesn't know them. Now, the Buddha says to him, Chitta, Suppose someone were to ask you, did you exist in the past or didn't you? Will you exist in the future or won't you? Do you exist now or don't you? How would you answer? Lord, if I were asked such a question, I would say, I did exist in the past. I did not not exist. I shall exist in the future. I shall not not exist. I do exist now. I do not not exist. That, Lord, would be my answer. So, a double negative, probably some Indian way of answering questions. Um, he's quite convinced that his self has a present, a past, and a future. And so are we. Nothing new in that. The only thing that's new in it that there is a Buddha to teach him otherwise. <laughs> now, there are many um, false assumptions in that past and present and future self. First of all, we are making new boundaries. The past self is the one that we have in our memory. The present one is the one we rarely observe but we are aware of it that it's sitting somewhere. But we are rarely with it. And the future one is the one we've got all our hopes pinned on. The one that's going to become totally concentrated, absolutely happy, make everything wonderful, and so on. So that's the future one that we've got. Um, so we've got three different ones. And with those three, we are quite convinced that they're all called me. And in reality, that's even worse. Because when we bring up the past into the mind, it is the present. And when we bring the future into the mind, that's also in the present. So what we're doing is we're not only putting boundaries around ourselves, making it into three, we're also putting boundaries around time and putting that into three parts. And everybody does it. And 
it actually, what it results in is that we fail to be able to live fully. Because to live is to experience. And we can only experience now. The rest is memory and hope. That's all it is. But it's no experience. So we are dividing ourselves into three selves and time into three parts. And with that division, we are anxiously awaiting the future and often regretfully thinking of the past. And happiness, of course, escapes us completely because in that kind of stance that we take, happiness doesn't have any room to arise. Pleasure does, but not happiness. Because happiness or inner joy have to be within and are always connected with tranquility. And that is not a tranquil state to live in. Since everybody does it, and everybody lives like that, we don't even know the futility and the falsity of it. We're not even aware of it. We think that's the way it is. Until we get into contact with the Buddha's teaching and see that there is another possibility. It doesn't have to be that way. Now, having been totally aware, maybe for one moment, we might have got an inkling through meditation or mindfulness what it's like to live in this moment. What it's like is that the past is gone, the future has not arisen, the moment is, and the moment is eternal. Because every moment is, and there's nothing else. So the division into three kinds of time brings already with it the division of three kinds of self. And Chitta is, of course, convinced of it. And, uh, well, I mean, he's exactly the same as everybody else. He has never heard anything different. So now the Buddha is trying to logically explain this to him. He's given this his answer. Chitta has given his answer. But Chitta, if someone asks you, the past acquired self that you had, is that your only true acquired self? And are the future and present ones false? Or is the one you will have in the future the only true one? And are the past and present ones false? Or is your present acquired self the only true one? And are the past and future ones false? How would you reply? Lord, if they asked me these things, I would reply, my past acquired self was at that time my only true one. The future and present ones were false. My future acquired self will then be the only true one, and the past and present ones will be false. My present acquired self is now the only true one, and the past and future ones are false. That is how I would reply. So now he has heard the Buddha's um, logical analysis and he says well yes of course i can't have three selves that's impossible doesn't make sense so in the past it would have been me in the past in the present it's me in the present and in the future it will be me in the future so at least he's got down to the fact that he only has one self up to then he thought of three of them and we are all thinking of three of them we're quite convinced i usually say at this point Go home and look at your old photo albums. And who are you going to see in there other than your friends? Always me. The past me. That's why we take photos, so that the past will not escape us. So there's me. And we are still, in the first instance of Chitta's understanding, we think there's three of us. And, of course, if we... Add to that the body and the mind, then we've got five of us. And uh, if we add to it the past in its movement, in other words, the past as its long past, and then maybe not so long, and then immediate past, so we might have 
several hundred if we have enough photos. So in the end, we wind up with a self which is so fractured that you can't possibly really point to it. So what is actually his answer is the answer that we would give also. We would also say that seeing that is so, we understand we can't be a hundred different selves. We quite agree with that. We can't even be three, so, or five. We would then say, well, the self is the one that is actually knowing now. And that's what he's up to now. He's up to the point where he says, no, I can't be three, I can't be many, I must be the one. The one that is actually happening now. So the others are gone. If you have any visualization ability, you can visualize a whole lot of yourself all disappearing into the past and then a whole lot of yourselves all going into the future. And when you look at it that way, you can see the absurdity of it all. That can't be right. It's not possible. But because one doesn't know anything else, that's how one lives with it. Now, all the mystics of all the ages have always known something else. Have always known that that is a um, fallacy, that one is only making that all up. And we're making it up for one reason only, and that's the craving for existence. If we didn't have that, we wouldn't be making it up. So actually, the way to look at this craving for existence is also that the delusion of this assumed self creates the craving for existence, and vice versa. The craving for existence is the underlying cause for the delusion of the assumed self. The two work hand in hand. They do it together. And it's not possible to say first this, then that. And the Buddha refuses to say first this, then that. So, Chitta is at the point where he says, okay, I'm, I'm me in this moment. And we would possibly also agree with that. We would also say, it's your me in this moment. Now he still has this formless acquired self to work, work with, and the formless acquired self, we can say, is our consciousness. And now the consciousness is sort of like the last resort, that we resort to, okay, so we're not the body, not the mind, difficult, but maybe we're consciousness. At least that must be me. And there we have different aspects. One consciousness that we are aware of, the consciousness in the jhanas. The jhanas are therefore mundane and not really anything special, because it's me doing them. It's not without me. All of them. Sometimes stronger, sometimes less strong. I've already mentioned that. Very strong in the first three, not so strong in the fourth one, strong again in fifth, sixth, and seventh, on a different level. An elevated consciousness, but I am doing them. And when I come out of them, I know what has happened. And it's one very weak, very weak me uh, consciousness. In the jhanas, no body consciousness. Otherwise, one can't do the jhanas. There's also no mind-made uh, convolution. You can't do the jhanas if one has mind-made convolutions. Any kind of thought will have had to stop. But then, there is this consciousness, and we love to identify with it, because it's very pleasant. And it also seems to be quite an achievement, and it also seems to be something that um, my friends can't do. And uh, <laughs> so it's, um, well, look at me, I can do the jhanas. I always remember 
my son saying, look, mom, no hands when he was on the bicycle. You know, wonderful. <laughs> so that consciousness obviously has an owner. Now, that is one kind of consciousness. But there's another kind of consciousness without the jhanas. And that's, I am conscious of what's going on. And we usually say it's the observer. So that's the consciousness that we're really identified with. If we have already agreed with letting go of this body idea, which is only an agreement, which only happens when one really does it. But the agreement is already something. And if one has had an agreement that maybe the four parts of the mind are also not me, obviously there's something left which keeps saying me. And all it's doing is screaming because it's our craving for existence which is screaming at us. I can't exist if there's no me. I've got to have a me. So I'll take the most refined one. And the most refined one is obviously consciousness. And that's what he's called here the formless one. The last one of the three. So we might have intellectually given up the other two. But in actuality, we haven't given up a thing until we've had a past moment. And even then, it's only a beginning. So, if asked, just like Chitta is being questioned by the Buddha, we might come back to that. We might come back to the consciousness one, to the observer one, which is, we've, we feel very often that that's above the rest of the stuff. There is sense consciousness, there is feeling, there is perception, and there are mental formations, and then there is something above that which keeps looking down at all that stuff. That that's only a mental formation escapes us. But this is what now Chitta has also come down to, that there's only one self, and that has to be the one in this moment. And... the Buddha gives him another example. So, now, Chitta has said, it's, it's only in the past it was the past self that was me, in the present it's the present that's me, and in the future it will be the future self that's me. So then, the, uh, the Buddha says, in just the same way, Chitta, whenever the gross acquired self is present, we do not at that time speak of a mind-made acquired self or of a formless acquired self. And he gives them a, a simile. In just the same way, Chitta, from the cow we get milk, from the milk curds, from the curds butter, from the butter ghee, and from the ghee cream of ghee. And when there is milk, we don't speak of curds, of butter, of ghee, or of cream of ghee. We speak of milk. When there are curds, we don't speak of butter, and so on. When there is cream of ghee, we speak of cream of ghee. And then he says again, So too, whenever the one self is present, we do not speak of another. Whenever there is a mind-made one, we do not speak of the gross or formless one. When the formless one is there, we do not speak of the gross or mind-made one. But Chitta, and this is now quite an important statement that he makes, these are merely names expressions, turns of speech, designations in common use in the world which the Tathagata uses without misapprehending them. What the Buddha is saying here is he's talking about all these different selves to Chitta and he asks Chitta what he thinks and Chitta answers him. But he says we're talking about something which is only in common use in the world. We're not talking about absolute truth. He's trying to show Chitta that there is such unbelief in people, which Chitta himself has, but it's not absolute. It's only that which 
we all think it to be. And he says, but the Tathagata, which is another word for the Buddha, is not misunderstanding them. He puts it all on that relative level because both Chitta and Potapada have not practiced. They have no idea what the practice will bring. Although he has explained it to Potapada, Potapada hasn't done it. And Chitta wasn't even present. Chitta came later. So he didn't even get the explanation of the morality, the mindfulness, the guarding of the senses, the clear awareness, and the, the jhanas. He didn't get any of that. So he's, he's making sure that Chitta understands that he's speaking to him on a relative level. And this is something which is um, often mentioned as a verse about it, if I can find it again, where it is where it's also mentioned about the two levels of speech which the Buddha uses, and he uses them as they are relevant to the listener. I didn't put a marking where it is a little bit. Here it is. <laughs> uh, two truths the Buddha Best of all who speak, declared, conventional and ultimate, no third can be. Terms agreed are true by usage of the world. Words of ultimate significance are true in terms of dhammas. Thus the Lord, a teacher, he who is skilled in this world's speech, can use it and not lie. So, it's an explanation of the fact that the conventional way of speaking is not a lie. It's quite all right, because that's the way the world understands. But there are words of ultimate significance in terms of Dhamma, and in terms of Dhammas. Now, when it says Dhammas with a small d and an s at the end, it means phenomena. In terms of phenomena, in terms of everything that exists. Dhamma with a uh, capital D and without an S at the end is supposed to mean the teaching of the Buddha or truth or law of nature. So this is what he's pointing out here that he's speaking on that level. Now he's quite happy that Chitta understands that there can only be a present momentary self idea and gives him the simile of the milk and the curds and the butter and the ghee. Because everything arises from the next one, but we can only see the one or talk about the one that we actually have at this moment. So he's leaving it at that with him. He's not trying um, to show him that that too is wrong. Because he realizes that the practice path which he has uh, laid out, needs to be trodden first. His teaching is sometimes called Pariyati Patipati. Patipati is a practice and Pariyati is a study. So he's trying to explain, but he knows they've got to practice. Because if they don't, both of these people that he's talking to, if they don't, they're going to find new arguments. New arguments which lead to nothing. They don't lead to any further understanding. A new argument about who is self and who is not self and why isn't there a self and can't I have the one that I like and not the one I don't like and so on. If we think of the one I like and the one I don't like, we can think of the soul idea. The soul idea is of course a self idea. And it's also concerned with the one I like. It's not concerned with the one I don't like in me. That one has never been really mentioned in that kind of connotation. It's always the one I like. And it's no different here 
people are the same everywhere and, and on every um, on every pathway. Now comes a traditional explanation, which happens at the end of practically every sutta. And it's verbatim the same, over and over again. And that comes, of course, from the fact that these suttas were recited for at least 250 years, so that the recitation had to remain the same so that one wouldn't make a mistake. So I'll read you this traditional end of very many suttas. At these words, Potapada the wanderer said to the Lord, Excellent Lord, excellent. It is as if someone were to set up what had been knocked down or to point out the way to one who had got lost or to bring an oil lamp into a dark place so that those with eyes could see what was there. Just so, the blessed Lord has expounded the Dhamma in various ways. Lord, I go for refuge to the Lord, the Dhamma and the Sangha. Is convinced of the Buddha's teaching, wants to be a lay follower, and takes refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Taking refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha is a way of expressing one's commitment to the practice, one's love and devotion to the teaching and also of finding a shelter. A shelter which, of course, a mental shelter which can result in the greatest happiness. This is done, of course, to this day and uh, here he can go to for refuge to the Buddha himself, which he says, and uh, what we do in this day and age, we go for refuge to the enlightenment principle which is embodied in the Buddha. The Buddha who was a historical person and a human being just like us who became fully enlightened. So the enlightenment principle which exists within the Buddha exists within all of us. And refuge in the Buddha means that we recognize that with devotion, love and gratitude and recognize the Dhamma, the teaching, as our greatest support for happiness and the Sangha, those that became enlightened following the Buddha's teaching and have propagated the Dhamma over two and a half thousand years so that it is still available to us today. So there's gratitude, there's devotion, there's commitment and there's a feeling of protection. If we follow the guidelines, if we follow what is actually seen as true, we have a protection from the dangers of the world and the dangers of our own instincts. We know that there are dangers everywhere. And that taking of refuge can give an underlying sense of steadfastness. It need not, but it can. A steadfastness to stay with the practice. Most people in the world find it difficult to stay with the practice. Sometimes they take time off, time out of the world, and often their practice goes on and off. But it can be helpful if one remembers that there's something far greater than oneself. And this far greater one than one oneself in oneself also brings a sense of humility and a sense of humility is not an inferiority complex they're two entirely different things an inferiority complex is I'm less than you are but a sense of humility is a feeling of not being quite as important as one has thought oneself to be and therefore 
is a step in the direction toward non-self. Because as long as I am important, there's no way I can let go of this mental formation of self. So humility is actually a part of the path. The humility of seeing oneself in the right light. Not in the way of blaming oneself. Not in the way of thinking of oneself as not being worthy. But in the way of seeing oneself still enmeshed in the follies of the world. As long as one is enmeshed in the follies of the world and one doesn't even have to do it physically, it's enough if one does it mentally, one hasn't got that purity and perfection that we can see in the Buddha's teaching and therefore can assume to have been part of the Buddha's makeup, a total clarity and a total purity. And seeing that, there's humility. Humility of wanting to follow that. So that's what Potapada is doing, is taking refuge, asking him to, asking the Buddha that he would like to take refuge for the rest of his life, he says. Now this is something that one usually does. If one takes refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, one doesn't take that provisionally, maybe till next week or something like that it doesn't have the right effect. One takes it in order to live with it and to practice accordingly. And then Chitta has something to say. But Chitta, son of the elephant trainer, said to the Lord, and it's the same words again, excellent Lord, excellent. It is as if someone were to set up what had been knocked down, point out the way to one who got lost, bring an oil lamp into a dark place, so that those with eyes could see what was there. Just so the blessed Lord has expounded the Dhamma in various ways. Lord, I go for refuge to the Lord, the Dhamma and the Sangha. May I, Lord, receive the going forth at the Lord's hands. May I receive ordination. So he's asking to be a bhikkhu, a monk. And uh, I think I mentioned once before, in those days it was very simple. All the Buddha said was, Ehi bhikkhu. Bhikkhu, and you were a bhikkhu. Nowadays, it's an elaborate ritual which uh, can take quite a long time, not, yes, quite a long time, and uh, it is um, connected with uh, saying the precepts which are quite numerous. See, in the days of the Buddha, in the beginning days of his uh, ministry, he didn't have to make any rules for the monks and the nuns. Or he didn't have nuns in the very beginning. But he didn't have to make any rules for the monks because they were all arahants. So none of them misbehaved. But then, as time went on, more and more people came to join the Sangha. And every time something bad happened, he made a new rule. And at one stage there were 75, and then there were 115, and then there were 150, and we finally wound up with 227. And uh, obviously if he was alive today, he'd make a few more. <laughs> Some of those rules are not uh, pertinent to our present social condition. They don't make any sense for us. There's no way that we can transfer India of two and a half thousand years ago to the West today, but the main rules are the ones that are important and the main rules are the ones that have stayed with us. And the minor ones are there too, but they do not really... There's no way one can break them because they don't apply. We don't do that sort of thing anyway. He actually made rules for practically every possibility, even how to go to the toilet. Because also that, in those days, could have resulted 
in some harm to plant. So in when he was asked by Chitta to make him a monk, evidently that hasn't happened yet. He just gave him his the ordination. It started, this elaborate uh, ritual started when it became too much for the Buddha to do all the ordinations and to look after everyone who was part of the Sangha so that he designated certain senior monks to ordain. And then when they did that, they had a certain way of doing it to follow. And similar to that, we follow it to this day. And Chitta, son of the elephant trainer, received the going forth. The going forth is a means going forth from the home life, family life, into the homeless one. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that one doesn't have a roof over one's head. But it means that one doesn't live a family life. And uh, at one stage, they didn't have a roof over their head. They didn't have any monasteries. But later, monasteries were built, and they did have their huts, putties, where they could live. And so the homeless life is not being in a family. And it also means that the house or the putty one lives in, one doesn't own it. And maybe the car that one is driven about in, one doesn't own it. So none of that is one's own. And therefore it's called the going forth from the homeless, from the home life to the homeless. Not to be confused with having no place to sleep. And you receive the going forth at the Lord's hands and the ordination. And the newly ordained, venerable Chitta, alone, secluded, unwearying, zealous and resolute, in a short time, attained to that for the sake of which young men of good birth go forth from the household life into homelessness, that unexcelled culmination of the holy life, having realized it here now, by his own super-knowledge, and dwelt therein, knowing, birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done, there's nothing further here. Birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived. When there is the culmination of the practice, there is no feeling of a person or an entity within that mind and body phenomena. It's different. It's a different feeling. And if one hasn't had it, one doesn't really know what it can be like. One can infer that if there's nobody sitting inside, there's nobody that gets worried. And there's really nobody that needs to remember. And there's nobody that needs to plan. And there's nobody that feels insecure. There's just mind and body doing whatever needs to be done, which the Buddha did for 45 years of his ministry. So what is being said here is birth is destroyed because birth comes about through our craving for existence. And we can have only have that craving for existence if there is someone there to have it. And since there's nobody there to have it, there's no craving and therefore no rebirth. It's the end of the line. Just as we heard in that story of when no new fuel is being put on the firewood, then the fire goes up. And that's what means birth is destroyed. The holy life, the spiritual life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There's nothing further here. And the venerable Chitta, son of the elephant trainer, became another of the Arahants. Um, an elephant trainer, by the way, was a highly regarded craftsman and still is a mahout, 
and they are very important people and uh, they're well paid so it actually says that he comes from a good background we don't know what elephant trainers are we don't have elephants but in in India they were very important and in to this day in Sri Lanka they are also very important and mahouts are important so when the venerable Chitta was ordained he stayed alone secluded he was unwearying and zealous and resolute he was determined in other words and in a very short time he attained to that for the sake of which young men of good birth go forth from the household into the homeless life. It often says young men of good birth, although the Buddha was not caste conscious, he took anyone. One of the lowest castes in those days was a barber. He took him too. He also took a street cleaner into the Sangha. It wasn't the caste system that he was referring to. He was dead set against it. He said, the caste is not what matters. It's your inner development. So, good birth, one would assume, relates to that is coming from a family which was looking after their children and looking after their household life in an appropriate manner. It doesn't mean rich people, and it also doesn't mean a high caste. High caste was very important in those days. And even though it's supposed to have been abolished, it still exists. Caste system still exists. And it exists not only in India, it exists all around India also. Also in Sri Lanka, and uh, it's quite insidious. It's not quite as uh, confined anymore as it used to be, but it's still there. So he's not referring to that at all. And it says again that to become an arahant is the, um, the goal for going forth from the household life into the homeless life. And um, it's the unexcelled culmination of the spiritual life. And one has to realize it by one's own super-knowledge. Now, obviously, he started practicing. It doesn't say a word about Potapada, who was the main um, actor in our uh, sutta here. It doesn't say that he did anything. It just says that he went for refuge. We can only hope that he also started meditating, but we don't know. He isn't mentioned again. Chitta, who came later and hadn't heard it anything at all, was the one that then got the fruits and the benefits of it all. These are also traditional uh, words at the end of suttas when somebody asks for ordination. It's a very traditional way and uh, often repeated words that um, come at the end of suttas and always verbatim the same. So if one has read them once, then one might not want to read them again. But the, um, the sutta as such gives us an insight into the fact how difficult it is even when you have the Buddha in front of you to realize that we are thinking in a wrong way. And possibly having looked at it from that standpoint of those three divisions that we make into our self and then making not only those three but three more into past, present and future making it six and then uh, possibly also making more out of it by recognizing that the past had different selves we might see that it is not a line of reasoning that would we should pursue in order to reach happiness. The line of reasoning is particularly strong in people who like to reason. There are others who don't even want to reason it out. 
they can see immediately that this isn't going to bring any benefit and are concerned with letting go. What is not mentioned in this sutta, and I'm going to talk about it tomorrow, are the four different steps that we can take and that are necessary to take in order to lose this self-consciousness. And maybe this sutta could be called self-consciousness. It's called the states of consciousness, but it's self-consciousness. And uh, I think in order to round up this teaching that is um, propounded here, it's uh, important to know those four steps which follow when the training has become complete. So we'll, I'll explain those tomorrow. They start with stream entry and end with arahant. And those are the goals that the Buddha is talking about, the goals of reaching Nibbana.